I invite your attention this morning to Daniel chapter 10. The Old Testament book of Daniel. We've been studying through it for quite some time now, and we come to chapter 10. If you've not been with us, that's a practice of our church. We believe in the exposition of Scripture. We believe that you just take the text of God's Word and we work through it together. And this has been an incredible study because Daniel is so uh, closely linked in many respects to where we've lived for the last year. We actually started this series last March just before everything kind of... Uh, ran off the rails, it seemed, and we just began to talk about prayer and prophecy at new ways. Now, everybody look this way. Once you've found Daniel, you can turn there and look, but I want to say to you that this text of Scripture that we're going to look at today is fascinating. It really is fascinating on several different levels, and part of the reason is because Daniel chapter 10 is going to give to all of us a peek behind the curtain into a world that we don't look at very often into the unseen realm of where Satan operates. Now, some of you say, well, I'll start getting the heebie-jeebies if you're going to talk about Satan and demons and those kinds of things. But the Bible is very clear that there is an enemy, and we are not fighting against flesh and blood. Our enemy is not one another, but there are very real powers and principalities in the unseen realm, and we're going to see that in Daniel chapter 10. We don't often give... Uh, to Satan, I, I think where we need to, our attention, not that we want to glorify his work, not that we want to be afraid of him, but I think it's critical for us to look at the tactics of our enemy and look at the weapons that God has given us so that we can live victorious lives. Now, again, if this is new to you, if you're coming to church for the first time and you say, that was strange, hang with me because I think you'll begin to see God's design in all of this. Let me give you a little context. Chapter 10 of Daniel begins the very last section of the book. It also gives us the final vision of Daniel. Daniel was a man who had been kidnapped as a child by a foreign power. Babylon had come into Jerusalem and swept away the people of God. And they were there for 70 years. They destroyed the city. They burned it to the ground. And Daniel had been taken away and he was given great favor with many of the kings. And in fact, early on in chapter 2, one of the kings had a dream he couldn't interpret And Daniel was given the power to interpret the dream, that vision. In Daniel 7, he had a vision very similar to the one in chapter 2. The the first one was of a statue, and that statue had to do with all of the nations of the world. In chapter 7, he dreamed of four different beasts, and those beasts corresponded with the statue. Hopefully, those of you that have been with us remember that. Choir, I know y'all remember it, right? Very good. The choir is always behind me. Uh In chapter 9, we've been studying that Daniel had a vision of 70 weeks that were going to happen. We've looked at that for the last couple of sermons that we've been together. And here in Daniel 10, he's going to have his fourth and final vision. But we're going to see that in the middle of his praying. Now, if you look at Daniel 10 in verse 1, you see just very simply that it begins in the third year of the reign of King Cyrus. And that may not have any interest to you, but it is interesting only so much as this. Everybody watch. It was the first year of King Cyrus's reign when he issued a decree that the people could go back to Jerusalem. They're 700 miles away, and he says, if you want to go back, you can. God softened his heart because God had promised they were going to be there 70 years. Their sentence was up. Their time was over. And he said, if you want to go back and rebuild the temple, go back. 
And so that's what's going on. We're two years after that. He's made the decree, and now in chapter 10 it says, in the third year of the reign of King Cyrus, Daniel has a vision. Now, again, as we think about this vision, pick up with me in verse 2, and let's read together. Daniel 10, verse 2. It should be on the screen, and hopefully you have a copy of God's Word with you. When the vision came to me, I, Daniel, had been in mourning for three whole weeks. At that time, I had eaten no rich food, no meat or wine crossed my lips, and I used no fragrant lotions until those three weeks had passed. Everybody look this way. You get a real sense of Daniel's agony. For three weeks, he's been praying and pouring his heart out to God. There's an agony stirring in his soul. He hasn't eaten anything. He probably hasn't slept. It says that he had not put on any fragrant lotion. I mean, nothing about what he's doing here shows that he's being around any people. I mean, he's in deep agony. In fact, I'll put it on the screen. It's in your notes. There is a conflict waging in Daniel's heart. I mean, he's conflicted. Daniel is torn apart. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been so burdened and broken down over something? Maybe it was a, 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 a an issue that was just out of your control. Maybe it was a job loss. Maybe it was an illness or a financial struggle. And it was just bigger than you could take care of. And in the midst of that, you were just torn up. You lost sleep. You couldn't eat. That's Daniel. In fact, in the Jewish culture, it says that he put on no fragrant lotion. That would kind of be like slapping on a little aftershave. So Daniel doesn't even put on his axe body spray, okay? I mean, he is just not wanting to see anybody anywhere, and he's distraught. Well, why is Daniel so distraught? He is distraught over the activity and action of his people. And the first one that I want you to see is the apathy of the people of God. They had two years to go back. Two years before, the king had said, if you want to go home, you can. Well, that's what they've waited for for 70 years. We want to go back. We want the temple reestablished. We want to worship God again. If you remember early on when they were snatched away, they would hang their harps by the river and just cry and say, how can we sing the songs of God when we're not in the city of Zion? We're not where God resides there at the temple. They were brokenhearted. Here's why Daniel was brokenhearted 70 years later. Because only 50,000 chose to make that trip back. There were multiplied many, many thousands more. But a small percentage said, we're going to go home. A lot of them had got comfortable in Babylon. They didn't want to go back and serve God. They didn't want to go back and worship God. They said, we're happy here. We'll just stay here. We've been here for a number of years. That's a long trip back. We're not going to go. And it broke Daniel's heart. Daniel said, why in the world would you not want to go back? Why would you not want to rebuild? And if on top of that, they had not done a great job of rebuilding. They were apathetic in their building. They were sort of playing at it. We learn that in the book of Ezra. You don't have to turn there, but in Ezra 3 and 4, we see that it's two years later, and they've just built the foundation for the temple. And in fact, it was interesting, there was a group of renegade Jews that had stayed along in the area. When when everything was taken 70 years before, there were some people that were just left there. And they came along, and they stirred up trouble. They contacted Babylon and said, they're not just rebuilding the temple, they're rebuilding the walls, and they're getting ready to stand up against you. And if you read in Ezra 3 and 4, you see that they came down on them and stopped all of the work. And report came back to Daniel, who is now 90 years old. Daniel's brokenhearted. 
He'd been there as a teenager and all the way through, he's seen God work. He saw God deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his friends, from the fiery furnace. He had been delivered from the lion's den. He's seen God move and he's crying out and said, oh God, your people are so apathetic. He also saw the apostasy of God's people. Write that one down, the apostasy of God's people. That meant that they were turning away. Many of them went back and they started marrying foreign wives again. And they started worshiping foreign gods. And again, there were many who stayed put in Babylon and they were very comfortable in the world. This is a side note sermon, but I know a lot of Christians today that are comfortable in the world. They walk like everybody else. They talk like everybody else. They think and act like everybody else. And it's not about the things we do and don't do that make us Christians, but it's about a relationship with God that makes our desires different. And I see so many people like these that would probably break the heart of a godly man like Daniel because we're comfortable in Babylon. So that's the context of where we are. As we see, he was deeply, deeply troubled because of the apathy and the apostasy of his people. And what did he do? He began to fast and pray and seek the Lord. Daniel is, is alone. There are other Jews that are still left there, but he's, he's alone. And here we are at the end of the captivity. And all of these people should have learned the lessons that God wanted them to learn. They have a wonderful new opportunity and they're blowing it. You can go home. The king of this foreign nation says, I'm not going. I think I'll stay put. It's interesting to me that Daniel got burdened in his heart. He knew exactly where to go. Look with me, if you will, in verse 12. Let's skip ahead for a moment. We'll come back. And then he said, don't be afraid, Daniel, since the first day you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before God, your request has been heard in heaven, and I have come to answer that prayer. So check it out, folks. Watch with me. Daniel is brokenhearted, and the very first thing he does is go to the Lord in prayer. He just begins to cry out in prayer. Where do you go when you're burdened? I don't know about you, but I have some pretty bad tendencies. I really do. When I'm burdened about something, I want to pick up the phone and find a friend that I can dump on. Anybody else? I want to just take that that problem and let them hear my struggles. Maybe you do other things. Maybe retail therapy helps you out. You're burdened down and you say, well, I'll just go buy something new and that'll make me feel better. Maybe you emotionally eat. I don't know what it is. Maybe you use some substance. I don't know what your comfort place is, but Daniel knew exactly where to go. And church, let me just say this. It's amazing to me that we run to every other possible solution except the one that God has given us that is a guarantee to get results. God said, if you call to me, I will answer you. Why is it that prayer for us is a last resort and not a first response? It ought to be when I'm burdened and I'm troubled, I just immediately go to the Lord. But I wait till everything is chaotic and out of my control and then cry out. And it's so silly for us to do that, but the reality is that we do. Daniel began to pray. I love this prayer. It was a, an overwhelming prayer. It says that in verse 12 that he had set his heart to pray. It was a spiritual prayer that, that he offered it before the Lord. It was an emotional prayer. I mean, he was burdened down. It, it was an intellectual prayer. He desired to know what was going to happen to God's people. And the reason I share all of that with you is just to give you a clear picture of this idea of how burdened he was. I mean, for three weeks, how many of you have prayed for anything for three weeks? Most of us have a hard time praying for three minutes. 
for three days and for three weeks. And this isn't the first time this man began to pray. We've seen it all throughout his life. But he's crying out and he didn't get an answer. And so he, when he didn't get an immediate answer, he kept on praying. The burden of his heart was directed toward heaven. I read a story, an autobiography not long ago about a man named Andrew Bonar. And Andrew Bonar was a pastor in the 1800s. And after he died, it it became known through his journals and just through his life that he was an unbelievable prayer warrior. His daughter said that every Saturday he would go to the church and he would take her with him. And he would sit her on the back pew. She sat in one place and he said, I'll be out in just a bit. And she said, one day it just got the best of me. My curiosities had to know, what is my daddy doing? And he started on one side. She slipped down from the chair that he'd put her in. And he came. she came into the back of that little sanctuary, that auditorium. And he knelt down as if to read the name on the back of the pew. You see, in those days, they actually had plaques and people had their own pews. And he prayed for that person. And she began to hear, and he was speaking audibly, and he was crying, and he would scoot over and bend over and read the next and pray. And for hours, the day before the people of God were going to gather together, he would pray for his people. Can I just tell you that I am deeply convicted when I read that and when I read about Daniel? I think that if ministers today would see that their role is not just to be flashy and fill the pulpit, my job is not, or it's not to fill the pews, it's to fill the pulpit. My job is not to draw crowds. My job is to be faithful to the Lord and to shepherd you and to pray for you. And I can, as God is my witness, just attest that I do my dead level best to pray for all of you continually. But if we, as the people, of God would recognize that prayer is a key that unlocks heaven's storehouse. Why don't we pray more? I got to tell you, I put it in your notes. As I studied this week, I just found myself weeping saying, if we really believe the truths that we're going to study this morning, then we ought to be haunted that we don't pray more. That we don't seek God, not out of a sense of duty and obligation, but out of a sense of joy that we know that's where the answers will come. Amen? Well, what I want us to do is to walk through this together. This burdened man began to pray. What would happen if we began to carry the burdens of our life that are placed on our hearts back to the very source, just like Daniel did? Look at verse 4. It's calculated that it would be on April the 23rd as I was standing on the bank of the great Tigris River. I looked up and I saw a man dressed in linen, in linen clothing with a belt of pure gold around his waist. He, his body looked like a precious gem. His face flashed like lightning. His eyes flamed like torches. His arms and his feet shone like polished bronze and his voice roared like a multitude of people. Wow. I mean, what a sight. You've been fasting for 21 days, for three weeks. You've not eaten or drank anything. You have found yourself utterly worn out praying for God. And all of a sudden, an angel shows up. No wonder the Bible says Daniel passed dead out. That's Hanbury translation. It doesn't exactly say that. But if you'll look with me in verse 8 and 9, you can confirm that. It says, so I was left there all alone to see this amazing vision. My strength left me. In fact, if you backed up a little bit, it says that the people that were around him ran. So he's standing there by himself with this angel. And he says, my strength left me. My face grew deathly pale and I felt very weak. 
I mean, he just absolutely collapses. The last time Daniel had prayed, if you remember in chapter 7, it said before the words left his mouth, Gabriel showed up. I just have kind of this funny, snarky sense of curiosity. I just wonder if Daniel finally stood up and said, I started praying three weeks ago. Where have you been? I mean, Gabriel showed up on the spot. Why in the world has it taken you three weeks to get here and answer my prayer? I mean, I've been pretty consistent over these 90 years in captivity to pray to God. And as we see this, he'd been praying for 21 days. This is different. Look at verse 13. The angel explains the reason for the delay. And, and we'll look at it in just a second, but everybody look this way. This may be one of the most important things that I preach to us as a church family in the five years that I've been here. I sincerely mean that. Fathers, listen up. Moms, listen up. Your place of authority in speaking over your children prayers or your grandchildren prayers. Students, listen up. Your place of authority that God has given you to fight the battle of spiritual warfare is listed right here in this text. And we better get this down. Verse 13. For 21 days, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. And then Michael, one of the archangels, came to help me, and I left him there with the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now, if you remember this, we said just before that there is a place where he began praying, and in verse 12 it says, as soon as you started praying, heaven heard, God heard, and God dispatched an angel. So here's what's happening. Daniel is burdened and he's praying. As soon as he starts praying on earth, God hears in heaven. God dispatches an angel to come and give him the answer, and that angel is intercepted by an evil angel, a demon, and they war in heaven for 21 days. Now, some of you saying our pastor has flipped his lid he's lost his mind he's a heretic no I'm just reading the text did the bible say that or did your pastor say that the bible just so we're there here's that situation some of you say Hanbury that's the most bizarre story I've ever heard in my life I didn't come to church today to hear this story of demons and war and angels and all of these things But this is keeping with the doctrines of the Word of God. Do you realize that Satan has his angels? You know that, right? The Bible says that. In fact, they're organized. Let me give you a few places. You may want to jot these down. Revelation 12, 7. It says, Then there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and what? And his angels. Satan has his angels. They were cast from heaven in the fall, in the rebellion of heaven. What about Matthew 25, 41? Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you accursed ones, into eternal fire. Prepared for who? The devil and? I mean, you realize that hell was never ultimately prepared for people, but people that have not trusted in Christ will spend time there in a place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. So Satan has angels. And in fact, as we read this, the spirit prince of Persia is supernatural. He opposed one of God's angels for these 21 days. He must have been one of Satan's evil messengers. That's the only logical possibility. 
Daniel's praying. God answers. A demon intercepts the answer. Pastor Scott, help me with this. What do evil angels do? I mean, if they interrupt prayer, what else do they do? Well, I am so glad you asked because that's exactly where we're going next. What do evil angels do? Well, let's take it from the word of God. Here's what they do. They run Satan's world. You realize that this is Satan's world? Some of you are shaking your head and scratching your head and saying, Pastor, this is God's world. No, you need to see this biblically. When Adam and Eve sinned, they submitted themselves to Satan. They listened to Satan and they gave up their right to rule with dominion over the earth. And the Bible says throughout that Satan is the prince or the power of the air. In fact, probably the most convincing place I can give you comes from Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Satan is tempting Jesus. He'd gone out to the wilderness. And listen to these words, Luke 4, 5 through 7. And then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And look look at verse 6. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are whose? He says, they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it to you if you worship me. Now, does Jesus rebuke Satan and say, this isn't your world, Satan. This is my father's world. This isn't your world. This is my world. No. He rebukes him and says, in essence, get thee behind me. You are not to tempt me to worship anyone but God. But he did not deny that this world belongs to Satan. I I hope that you put your theological thinking cap on with me for just a moment. Over and over again, we see it. Three times Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. In fact, the word prince is the word that that we would get czar from. It's C-S-A-R. It's Tsar in the Greek. And it's like Caesar or Kaiser. It, it is a word that means a ruler. And over and over again, we see it. Ephesians 2, 2, the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age. Over and over again, we see that God here does not rebuke Satan. So it helps us to understand. Look at me. It helps us to understand a lot of what's going on in the world around us. When we come to grips with the fact that this world belongs to Satan and his minions, and he's running it. Now, that leaves us some fascinating theological questions just swimming through the brain. How does he run it? Well, I don't believe at all that the Bible teaches that Satan is omnipresent. He is not everywhere present. And I have news for you. More than likely, I've heard many of you say, well, the devil's been on my case this week. More than likely, Satan has never personally tempted anybody in this room. I'm not trying to, to disparage your spiritual life. I put myself in that. But he's not messing with small potatoes like us. But there is here a prince of Persia. There is a geographic region. I believe that if you begin to think about that, can't you imagine that Satan would send a demon possessed with a spirit of greed to a place like Las Vegas or to New York City? That he would run world markets and media systems in organized ways? I guarantee you, you've met his demons. They come at us at the most inopportune times from our perspective, but they come at just these strategic moments to steal and to kill and destroy and discourage all of us. Now, I hope you stick with me. Again, if you say, well, I'm not into all of this heebie-jeebie stuff, this is peeling the curtain back. It's real. There's an unseen, eternal world beyond this world. There's more to this life than this life. 
And here Daniel is praying and his answer comes through an angel and his answer is intercepted and they war in heaven. Ephesians chapter 6 says something very powerful. The Weymouth translation says this, Ours is not a conflict of mere flesh and blood, but with despotisms and empires and forces that control and govern. Look at that. They govern over this dark world, the spiritual host of evil arrayed against us. Now, you need to hear this, church family. There's no such thing as abstract evil. We, we have this mindset that evil is just lurking out there, kind of floating around like a cloud. No, evil in Scripture is always uh, drawn, drawn back to a personality, to a self-conscious intellectual personality. There's evil within us, yes, our own evil hearts that are away from God, but there are also Satan and his angels. He has his troops out. They are organized. Here we see that he had signed one demon to Persia. His assignment was to keep God's plan from happening or going forward in Persia. Ever since the fall of man, let me read this to you. Dr. Merrill Unger wrote a book years ago on demonology. I thought it was almost foolish that I had to read it in seminary. Little did I know that we would come face to face with an enemy that's unseen and we would struggle. And yes, we joke about fighting Baptists and, and our bickering Baptists and, you know, meddling Methodists or whoever. We all can get ourselves in a jam with people, but our, our fight's not with each other. Satan is working. He's a a puppet master behind the the scenes pulling the strings. Merrill Unger said this, History since the fall of man has been unbroken attestation to the ominous fact of evil powers and human rulers. Whether it was Pharaoh in Egypt oppressing God's people or Nebuchadnezzar who led Daniel and the people of God into captivity. Nero who would brutally massacre people, torturing them. Perhaps the most solemn, solemn excuse me, demonstration of the utter barbarity and cruelty and wickedness energized by demon power has been reserved for the boasted civilization of the 20th century. And he used Hitler as the example. He said, Hitler, this demon-energized and demon-directed scourge of Europe has come and gone, but he leaves behind him a world system and philosophy of thinking. And he was talking about communism. And he was talking about a slippery slope down toward those ways. But it's said of Hitler that every single time he had a major campaign ahead of him, the night before, he spent time consorting with demons. He played with all manner of occult items. He was consulting with his prince in his area. Dr. Hanbury, I've heard you preach that Satan was judged at the cross. Yes, Satan was utterly defeated at the cross. In fact, John 16, 11 says the ruler of the world was judged there. Hebrews 2, 14 says that Christ's death destroyed him who had the power of death. Satan was judged and defeated at the cross. Pastor, if he was judged and defeated, why does it seem like he's winning? He's tearing families apart. He is addicting people and sucking them in with greed and with debt and with sex and lust and and all manner of sinfulness and wickedness and hatred and fighting and war. Does it seem like the church is winning today, folks? This is audience participation time and you can answer me. I mean, really, in the if you looked at the news this morning, does it look like, boy, the church is just gaining ground and winning every day? 
Choir, help me out. Does it look like the world is being impacted greatly by the church? No. If Satan is a defeated foe, then why is he winning? Here's why. It's amazing to me. We see the collapse of the home and the deterioration of the visible organized church and the calamity of nations and the demise of morality. And Satan seems to have a hold on states and cities and philosophies and religion and all of those in his grasp. There's one thing that's going to help us understand why we are where we are. The Bible is very clear. Satan was judged and destroyed at the cross. In fact, I want you to see this statement and maybe write it down somewhere. Calvary's victory destroyed every claim that Satan makes on us. Write that in your notes. Calvary's victory destroyed every claim that Satan makes on us. So why is he winning? Legally, Satan has no authority. Calvary was his undoing, Brother Wes. His claims were absolutely canceled. His power broken when Jesus died on the cross. But, listen, listen, it must be enforced. Let me illustrate it this way. In our nation, we have three branches of government. And in those three branches of government, we have the legislative branch. And their job is to make the laws. And then we have the judicial branch. And typically their job is to uh, enforce the law, or, or excuse me, to interpret the law. Sometimes they decide they want to make the laws. But the executive branch ultimately enforces the law. In 1919, there was an amendment made to our Constitution, the 18th Amendment. Anybody in here that's a constitutional scholar or has any idea about our history, do you know what the 18th Amendment dealt with? Anybody? It was about prohibition. It all of a sudden was illegal across the United States to sell intoxicating beverages. And that was the law of the land. The Congress ratified it. The president signed it. It became, everybody knew the 18th Amendment stands. The problem was that it was handed over to a man named Mellon. I think we may have a picture of him, possibly. And this man was a shrewd man. He was the Secretary of the Treasury. He also owned the largest brewery syndicate in the nation. So guess what? He didn't enforce the law. Legally, it's not supposed to happen. And he said, well, we're just going to continue business as usual. Does that make sense? Can a law be on the books and not be enforced? Yes or no? Listen to me. I believe that that is a picture of the church today. Jesus Christ has rendered Satan powerless and the church is supposed to hold him at bay with authority. We are to enforce the law of Calvary and we're asleep at the wheel. Hello. We are not standing up against the powers and the principalities. We're fighting with each other. And I believe with all of my heart that Satan has us so busy. He has us so tied up and tied down. That if we begin to take a long, hard look at what we know about prayer, prayer is to someone, yes. But prayer is also against some things. And I'm not slipping off into some charismatic realm. I'm just trying to say, if we don't take authority into our possession that Christ has given us and begin to fight on our knees, 
Oh, moms, why don't you go tonight to your bedside and get down on your knees and beg God to protect your children. Beg God to save them. I was overjoyed in my heart to hear Scott talk about praying for the salvation of his children. Oh, that we would do that. And then we would reach beyond our own children and you would pray for your neighbors. Oh, wait a minute. You realize that in just a little while, we're going to slip from our fellowship hall and go out. We set up a goal for pray and go. We're going to pray over 50,000 homes in Hattiesburg over the next five years. And today is a great day for you to go and help us. We've got soup for you to eat. We've got maps for you to take. And we just want you to go out, put door hangers on doors, and pray that God would move in those homes. But we said, no, I, I like to go on the, you know, I, I think if our church, when we get to the point where we can travel again, I'd love to go to Branson. That'd be fun. I, I like to do that. But I don't necessarily want to go out and pray for my neighbors. And Satan laughs. Daniel did not quit praying. He didn't give up. He prayed earnestly for three weeks and continued to pray. He didn't eat. He didn't sleep. He begged God. And in that moment, that brought breakthrough. You see, there was a conflict waging in Daniel's heart, yes, but there was also a conflict waged in heaven. Out in outer space, you see this pretty unique thing. We need to learn today about spiritual warfare through prayer. How to fight the battle. 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning And to destroy false arguments. I love that. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We're not enforcing the spiritual laws. And we do that by praying for people around us. God's given us that opportunity. Now, there is abuse of that, absolutely. People say, I have authority. And the people that are using it with a name it and claim it kind of mindset, their goal is to use God to get what they want. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in authority, allowing God to use you for the things that he desires to happen. Does that make sense? Totally different perspective. And I'm calling on our church family to be a church filled with praying people, prayer warriors. We need to come to that place. Ephesians 6, we've mentioned a couple of times. You may want to jot it down, but Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 12, it says, We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against Look at that, evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world. And it goes on to say that we are in this unique place of fighting not against just that, but against evil spirits in heavenly places. And he goes on, he says, therefore, put on every piece of God's armor. We talk about the full armor of God. This is a whole other sermon series for another day. But he says each of the pieces, he talks about the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, and so forth. Take up the sword, which is the word of God. And then look, if you will, with me toward the end of it in verse 17 as we move forward. It says, put on the helmet of salvation. Take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And verse 18 says, pray in the spirit at all times on every occasion. Listen to me. Brother Ralph, there are only two offensive weapons in this list the word of God and prayer and we almost never mention prayer as one of them we talk about all of these other things and just say well prayer is sort of an add-on no prayer is our weapon if you're going to stand up against the enemy if we're going to see all of these things that we desire to fall fall we're going to see that happen it'll happen through prayer we settle the issues that are really important when we pray Why did this angel finally get released? 
Because Daniel never quit praying. He kept praying and the victory that released the angel was the, the tool of prayer. We try to solve our problems in so many different ways. We try to solve our problems by voting or by talking or by posting on social media. We try to solve our problems by strategy, but we could do a lot more on our knees if we really believe that. If we really believe that. If we really believe that, prayer would become the main business of this church. If we really believe that, prayer would become the main business of your home. I know we're called to make disciples, yes, but it starts with an intimate relationship with God the Father, and that happens through prayer. You want to see victory in your life? Pray. You want to see breakthrough in some areas of struggle? Begin to pray. You want to see God exercise his authority exercised over issues in your life, begin to pray. But Satan is winning. Why? Because we're a prayerless people. Satan is so slick. He keeps us busy reading all of the latest books at the Christian bookstore. I mean, they're good things. He keeps us involved in organized strategies for church growth, administering counseling, putting out the fires of opposition, running around trying to get all of the work done, and we don't have time to pray. The one thing that needs to get done goes undone. Let me just say this. We find ourselves frustrated and fatigued. And you say, Pastor, this is depressing. But let me just flip it over. If you want to find victory in your home, in your life, in your job, in your family, in your relationships, in your ministry, pray. Prayer is the key. I'll kind of begin to head toward home with this. Somebody has said about the modern American. You financially minded folks will appreciate this. The modern American is a person who drives his bank financed car over a bond financed highway filled up with credit card filled gas to open up a charge account at a store so he can fill his savings and loan financed home with installment purchased furniture. (laughs) They've got us figured out. Filled with anxiety. I'm seeing more and more of it. Counseling, depression, struggle. Because most of us just don't have a very high view of prayer. And we'll work through this together. And what I'm saying is, can we as a church agree that prayer needs to become the main business and focus of our lives? I I would encourage every person here, even if you didn't sign up, we'll run out of soup at some point. I pray that God would just multiply it. But if you signed up, go first. If you didn't sign up first, don't leave, but stay. Maybe you'll get some soup. If not, you can fast and pray like Daniel. We'll all pray. Let me just kind of finish this this way. How many of you have safety deposit boxes? That's kind of a foregone thing. I mean, today people have got fire safes at their house. But used to you'd go to the bank and there was a safety deposit box. It was in a vault. And many of them looked very similar to this. It was a two-key system. The, The secretary or some bank personnel had one key there and you had the other. When they issued you the box. Now, for those of you that don't have a clue what I'm talking about, people would go to the bank and they would put jewelry or important papers there and it would be locked up and safe, okay? 
Now, here's how it works. You have to have both keys to get in. That person from the bank would insert their key and they would turn it and you would insert your key and you would turn it. Here's what happened. At the cross of Calvary, God inserted a key for all of the storehouse of heaven. He gave to us, defeated an enemy and gave to us joy and life everlasting. But you and I need to take our key of prayer and insert it into the lock and turn it. And when we do, all of the storehouse of heaven is open to us and victory can be ours but the box is waiting on you heaven heard the very first time he began to pray and he continued to pray see God heard and answered but there was an enemy and Daniel exercised authority and God broke through Oh, that we would become an army of prayer warriors advancing the kingdom on our knees. Oh, that we would pray for people like the Lances in South Asia. That we would pray for people like the Brunsons in Montana. Oh, that we would pray for George Ross and his leadership over the city of New Orleans. Oh, that we would pray for mission partners like Karen who runs our Hope Clinic or like the Prouts who run Christian services. And we would partner with them and we would encourage them like Mitch Williams with the FCA reaching coaches that would reach a generation of people that we would pray, God, use them. God, embolden them, empower them, anoint them with your spirit. God, give us victory. And then we would turn and we would find ourselves on our knees praying, God, would you revive Hardy Street? Would you awaken that sleeping giant? There is no reason this church should not be filled with thousands upon thousands. We ought to be having services every other night of the week. We ought to be going out in droves and praying. We ought to be reaching students on these campuses for the glory of God. And we can. I don't want you to walk away, beat down and say we ought to. No, we get to pray. God said, I've given you the key. I believe God delights to back us up in the corners where we can't do anything but wiggle. And when we look up at that moment, when that's all we can do, we recognize that's all we needed. You ever been there? We look into the world. And we look into his word. And God says to us, your weapons, they're not carnal. There is weaponry available to you, and it's prayer. They're spiritual weapons. And in the great battle between heaven and earth, we've been given great authority. In Exodus 17, there's an incredible story of a battle with the Amalekites. And God's people went down into the valley. Joshua went down there. And and Moses went up on top of the mountain. And God told him something unique. He said, Moses, hold up the rod. And as long as you hold up that rod, my people will beat back the Amalekites. They will destroy them. Moses was old and his arms got a little tired. He hadn't done all the CrossFit he needed to. And he kind of wavered a little bit. And when he started to drop, the Amalekites gained strength and they began to beat back God's people. But Aaron and Hur came alongside him and they set him on a rock and one held up one hand and one held up the other. And this is a cool picture because what was going on up there impacted what was happening down here. And it's a picture of prayer. They were holding them up. Not everybody in this church is going to preach. Not everybody in this church is going to go out and be a dynamic verbal witness. That may not be your personality. It doesn't excuse you from witnessing, but you can pray for those that do. 
As Zoe said, you pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'd send more laborers into the harvest field, but you better be ready because he may say, okay, I want you to go. You may be the answer to that prayer. Church family, I love you. And I'm so grateful for you. I'm amazed at what's happening in and through our church. Let me just say this, just to add to what Zoe said and kind of wrap this up. That worldwide missions offering is a separate and distinct fund. If you give to our regular tithes and offerings, that goes to all manner of things. It helps with the lights and the electricity and staff salaries. It does help with ministry and missions. But we have established that worldwide missions offering specifically so that every single week it's in front of you. And every single quarter we take those percentages that are in that bulletin insert you have and we send checks to those folks. Whether they're in South Asia or South Alabama, whether they're serving out west or they're serving in the Far East, it doesn't matter where they are. We, we love them, we pray for them, we engage them, and we want you to give. We want you to support that. But oh, that we would be a praying church. Missions, yes. Discipleship, absolutely. But let's start with an abiding relationship with the Father. And that happens when we pray, and we pray with the passion of a man like Daniel, who would say, I'm not going to let go until I get an answer. Amen? Let's hang on till he answers. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for uh, this text and for how it impacts our lives. God, help us to see what's available to us, what is at our disposal through Jesus Christ and his completed work on the cross. And help us to stand up and wage war in spiritual places and take back enemy ground. In Jesus' name.